Hi, I'm Frank Lavallo, host of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, we'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our fifth season. You can enter through our Novel Conversations Facebook page or tweet us at novel underscript converse, that's C-O-N-V-E-R-S, or head to our website blog, thefrontporchpeople.com backslash blog. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Visible Voice Books. Without literature, life is hell. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This Novel Conversation is about Candide by Voltaire, and I'll be joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Elizabeth, Phil, hi. Hi, thanks for having us. You're more than welcome. Before we get started, I'd like to read a summary of Candide and then talk to you about the book. Published in 1759, Candide is the story of a young, good-hearted, but hopelessly naive young man named Candide. Educated by the great philosopher Pangloss and taught that this is the best of all possible worlds and that everything happens for a reason, Candide and his friends experience a ludicrous variety of tortures, tragedies, and reversals of fortune. All disasters designed by Voltaire to test and expose that great philosophical idea of his time, that all is for the best, and this is the best of all possible worlds. All right, Phil, I really want to talk about our first character, Candide. Well, he's a very innocent character, perhaps quite naive. Naive is always the word that comes to my mind. Yeah, at least at the beginning. He's been very sheltered, then he goes out and experiences the world. Candide is the illegitimate nephew of a German baron, and he's been living within this baron's house, being educated with the baron's own children. Right. And all three of these children are taught by a supposed great German philosopher, Dr. Pangloss. Dr. Pangloss believes that this is the best possible world, and everything happens for the best. So he's paralyzed by inactivity because he doesn't ever want to do anything better because it's all for the best. He's an incurable optimist, isn't he? And he loves to talk. Pangloss actually means all tongue, so that's pretty much all that he does. And even in time of crisis, he doesn't help or offer anything useful. All he does is philosophize about how this all happened for the best. And we'll actually get to the scene, but at one point, a man drowns in the Bay of Lisbon, and Pangloss goes through a whole philosophical dissertation on why the bay was there just so this guy could drown in it. Right, and syphilis, and how syphilis is so wonderful because it links back to Christopher Columbus and we wouldn't have enjoyed chocolate if Christopher Columbus hadn't brought syphilis back to the new world. Yeah, I can appreciate chocolate. (laughs) It's very satirical. All right, now before we send Candide off on his journey, let's talk a little bit more about him. The name has come down to us as Candid, but Candid to me is a little bit more forceful than I found Candide to be. Yeah, he's such a blank slate. That he doesn't have any opinions of his own, really. And he even seems to adopt what is in his environment without question. Like a sponge. 
Right. It seems he's going to parrot the last person that talks to him, unless someone else talks to him after that. Yeah, it's a good point. Although, because he was raised with Pangloss... He's loyal to that. He's, he's been indoctrinated with that philosophy. So he has to go through an awful lot to finally question it. As I said, he's living at the Baron's house with his cousins, and he develops feelings for the daughter, Kunigunde. What happens is that she sees Pangloss and her chambermaid fooling around in the bushes. So she gets curious and goes to find Candide. And then they are interrupted by the Baron. Right. Candide kisses Kunigunde, and the Baron catches them. And therefore, Candide is expelled. So... There's this crush and this romance that develops. So, ironically, he sees his mentor in this immoral little affair going on, and then that leads to everything that falls apart from the start, really. Well, let's talk about how things fall apart. He's expelled from the house, and what happens to him next? Right after they kick him in the backside out of the castle, he is picked up by the Bulgarians. The Bulgars. The Bulgars. They see him and realize he's the perfect size to fit into one of their uniforms of armor. So they basically put him to war. Right. He's shanghaied and conscripted into their army. But he goes along with this. Well, he's sure it's for the best. And they tell him he's going to be a hero. So he thinks, all this might be a good thing. And then the narrator says, they immediately put irons on his legs and take him to the regiment. So not a very auspicious beginning. But then he goes for a walk, and then he's mistaken for a deserter. And then he has to pick between these two horrible punishments. And what are those two horrible punishments? He either walks a gauntlet of 4,000 strokes of the ramrod or to basically be shot to death. So he tries to reason out of both of those, which doesn't work. So he chooses to run the gauntlet, and then his skin is being flayed off of him, and then some nice doctor heals him. Just in enough time for him to go to another war. Yep, he's off to another war, which he doesn't want any part of. So he's already being pushed and prodded by different forces. Pushed, prodded, punished. Beaten. Clearly these events have to be exaggerated in order for Voltaire's satire to work. Yes. All right, so after Candide was flayed and punished by the Bulgars for this attempted desertion, he actually goes off with the army to a battle. There's a couple of really good paragraphs uh, about this scene. Did you want to read those, Phil? Sure. Nothing could be so beautiful, so smart, so brilliant, so well-drilled as the two armies. Trumpets, fifes, oboes, drums, and cannon formed a harmony such as was never heard, even in hell. First, the cannons felled about 6,000 men on each side. Then the musketry removed from this best of worlds some nine or 10,000 scoundrels who infected its surface. The bayonet also was the sufficient reason for the death of some thousands of men. The whole might amount to about 30,000 souls. Candide, trembling like a philosopher, hid himself the best he could during this heroic butchery. Phil, just in one paragraph, Voltaire offers this entire satire of war. And that's followed up in the next paragraph, talking about villages that were burned in accordance with the rules of international law. So again, mockery there. So now Candide's had enough of war. He's had enough of the butchery that he's witnessed, and he decides to flee. And he actually runs into another character we haven't introduced yet, an Anabaptist by the name of Jacques. He's a Dutch Anabaptist. Right. I guess he would be a Protestant equivalent today. He helps Candide, and he believes that humans are not made to kill each other. And so he's one of the hopeful characters that Voltaire offers, although he ultimately does die. Jacques does die helping someone else. And actually, that's the moment that we mentioned earlier where Pangloss explains to Candide, well, of course the Bay of Lisbon was only there so the Anabaptists could drown while trying to save the sailor. Yes. Everything has a reason. Right. And it's also at this time that Candide runs into his old tutor, Dr. Pangloss. But Dr. Pangloss is hardly recognizable. 
Elizabeth was quick to point out at the beginning of our show, he's suffering from syphilis and now has lost several of his body parts, including the tip of his nose. And one of his limbs. But he has a story to tell Candide about what happened after Candide had left the Baron's house in Germany. The Baron has been killed, the castle or the garden has been ravaged, and Cunegonde has been raped and disemboweled, which apparently happens often? <laughs> Actually, I think as far as Dr. Pangloss knows, everyone's dead. Everyone's been killed. Everyone's been killed. Killed by the Bulgars. Dr. Pangloss got syphilis from the maid that we saw him with in the bushes at the beginning of the story. But he does tell Candide that everyone is dead. Right. Right. But he still has not abandoned his optimistic philosophy at all. Well, Phil, there must have been a good reason for everyone to be killed. We just don't understand the evil, but it is for some good. God has a plan. We're just too stupid to know it. <laughs> now Candide's going to go off with Dr. Pangloss and continue their adventures. Well, then they experience an earthquake, which is more mayhem, more death, more devastation. This is the earthquake in Lisbon, and we should mention for our listeners, this was an actual event. This was an actual earthquake that occurred in 1775 in Lisbon. Actually happened, right. It was a horrible loss of life, and it impacted Voltaire quite a bit. The difference here being, I guess, that usually he satirizes human evil. This one has to do more with just a, a natural catastrophe. But it still flies in the face of the Pangloss philosophy of how could this be for the best? Right. How can an all-good God let this horrible thing happen? That's Candide's question. Right. It seems like Candide is more of the opinion that God created the world but is not actively involved day to day. Whereas Pangloss is saying, well, if a good God created the earth and all is for the best, then all is good. So if there's a good God... This must be for good. We just don't know why. And that theory, evil is really working in the service of a larger good, we just can't perceive it. If we knew the whole plan, we'd understand where this evil comes in right. to the eventual good. But since we can't know the plan, we just see the evil. We might want to actually prevent the evil, but in Pangloss's mind, we don't want to prevent it because it's part of the plan. Back to the earthquake in Lisbon. Candide is trapped. Dr. Pangloss presumably goes to his rescue and then really provides no help at all. He's asking for help when all Pangloss can do is philosophize about earthquakes. The actual quote is... Candide lost consciousness, and Pangloss brought him a little water from a neighboring fountain. <laughs> but he had to pretty much go unconscious before that. Yeah, this is after he had been begging Pangloss for it. Now, after the earthquake in Lisbon, it's decided by the priests that they're being punished and that they need a sacrifice to appease the gods to prevent further disasters. And Candide and Dr. Pangloss walk right into it, basically an inquisition called the Auto de Fe. Act of faith. Basically just burning people alive, I think, right? Isn't that the act? Yeah, right. It's a public penance for condemned heretics. It's a sacrifice, right. So again, it's mocked as the way to ward off more earthquakes. Of course, they do it, and then there's more earthquakes. And with Candide and Dr. Pangloss being strangers to Lisbon, they're immediately pounced upon as potential sacrifices to appease God and prevent, as you said, further earthquakes. However, being burned at the stake is not going to work. It's raining. Right, so they hang Pangloss. Right, correctly. But not effectively. We don't know that yet. He's been hanged. And Candide, he's in trouble just for listening. Right. He gets beaten again. He's always being beaten. And it's at this time with Candide flayed again within an inch of his life that we meet another important character in our novel, the old woman. And we're never actually given her name. We're just introduced to her as the old woman. She comes in to save Candide, takes him away from the scene, and begins to minister to his wounds. And then we get her story. Right. 
and it turns out she's the servant of Kunigunde, who is, lo and behold, still alive. The old woman takes Candide to her, and they reunite, and there's kind of a funny passage. What, is it you? said Candide. You're alive. I find you again here in Portugal. Then you were not raped? Your belly was not slit open? As the philosopher Pangloss had assured me. Oh, yes, said the fair Kunigunde, but people do not always die of those two accidents. <laughs> accidents. <laughs> so they are reunited and ready for more of their journey. And it's at this point where Kunigunde is complaining about her life up to this point that the old woman says, oh, please, you think you've suffered? You don't know anything about suffering. And she proceeds to give us her story. She is the daughter of a pope who was raised as a princess and engaged to a prince. One night, the prince's mistress, the marquis, poisons him with chocolate because she's mad he's marrying the old woman. And then the old woman and her mother flee. And somehow she gets kidnapped by pirates who subjected her to cannibalism and end up eating one of her buttocks. Very well put. Uh, just one of the buttocks. <laughs> so, so she kind of beats everyone's story for now. But at the end of her story, she talks about how in spite of all that, she decided not to be suicidal and that she still loved life. Well, I don't know if she loved it, but she decided it was worth living. At the very least, she's not going to throw it away. Yeah. Right. So after we hear some of the old woman's story, this is where Kunigunde wants to tell Candide what's going on in her life up to this point. And we get the story of her being kept by two lovers, a Jewish merchant keeping her on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They get joint custody of her. <laughs> That's right. And the Grand Inquisitor of the Inquisition, he has her on the other days. But neither one of them has her on Sunday because they just can't decide which day is actually the Sabbath between the Jew and the Christian. <laughs> All the religions get their share of abuse. And, of course, this infuriates Candide. He believes himself to be in love with Kunigunde, and he just won't put up with this. As a matter of fact, while they're having this conversation, the Jewish merchant comes calling, and in his infuriation, Candide runs him through with a sword and says, Oh, my God, this is the first person I've ever killed. But sure enough, it's not going to be the last person he ever killed. Several minutes later, apparently he got his days wrong, the Grand Inquisitor shows up. He also wants some time with Kunigundi. Candide responds again and runs him through with his blade. I think it may have been around midnight, actually. Changing of the guard. <laughs> Changing of the guard. That's very good. And now, of course, obviously, since he's killed two people, they can't stay in Lisbon any longer. So Candide, Kunigundi, and the old woman all decide they've got to leave. In fact, they decide to flee to the New World, to South America. And it's while they're on this journey that they realize Candide is being pursued for the murders of the Jewish merchant and the Grand Inquisitor, and they decide to split up. He can no longer stay with Kunigunde and the old woman because he's only putting them in danger. He's actually going to leave them in the care of a Spanish gentleman that we're introduced to, Don Fernando, and he's going to take another boat and head deeper into South America. But before we continue on Candide's journey deeper into South America, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor for this season of Novel Conversations, The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service brought to you by The Great Courses, the leading global media brand for lifelong learning and personal enrichment. There are thousands of courses to choose from, including one of my personal favorites, Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. This course compares extreme alternative realities and classics like Brave New World to new blockbusters like The Hunger Games and digs into the darkness at the center of perfect societies, the hope behind terror, and so much more. And the courses are easily accessible. Through the Gate Courses Plus app, you'll be able to watch or listen to lectures at any time. And these courses aren't just taught by anyone, like me. You'll be learning from the world's greatest professors from Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, and experts from the National Geographic and the Smithsonian. 
This is college-level learning, but without the student loans, the pressure of homework, or the pressure of grades. As fans of Novel Conversations, we are giving our listeners a special limited-time offer right now. The Great Courses Plus is giving away a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. To get this offer, you need to sign up through my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. Start your free month today, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate this offer brought to you by Novel Conversations and The Great Courses Plus. All right, back to our discussion on the novel Candide by Voltaire. Before we took our break, we left Candide fleeing the authorities and heading deeper into South America. And Elizabeth, we really should mention that this whole novel is a collection of short journeys. Right. One of the interesting things about it is that it's more of a travelogue. You get just snippets of little adventure, so it really is easy reading. And while we can't touch on every journey and adventure that Candide and his crew have, I do want to now talk about the journey to El Dorado. And I actually say their journey because Candide has just picked up another traveling companion. Yeah, he now has picked up a servant named Cacacombo, who is very loyal to him. In one way or another, they end up on a runaway boat, they get caught up in a river, the river takes them through a cave, they spend 24 hours traveling on the river through this cave, then they come out into the daylight and they find the beautiful city of... El Dorado. A utopia, really. It's a place that has no prisons, no police. Everyone agrees with each other. Uh, There are no priests. There's no currency. The roads are paved with gold. Which Candide can't believe. Money doesn't mean anything. And I think we can assume there's no lawyers in this country. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But it has an interesting effect on Candide, who up to this point was always very innocent. But the narrator reveals that becomes kind of greedy when he sees all of these coins and he thinks about what he could do with it all. They go to a hotel, I believe, and he goes to pay. And the owner kind of laughed at him and says, we don't pay for things here. Everything is free. And there's that funny passage about the priest. Yes. He says, what? You have no monks to teach, to dispute, to govern, to intrigue, and to have people burned who are not of their opinion? We would have to be crazy, said the old man of El Dorado. We are all of the same opinion, and we do not understand what you mean with your monks. And yet... Now that Candide has found his best of all possible worlds, he's found his utopia, he's not happy here, and he's not going to stay, is he? Well, I think greed gets the better of him, and he starts to realize, well, if all these things don't matter to the people of El Dorado, then we can just take them and be really rich in our world. One of the other reasons he gives is that he misses Cunegonde, and he wants to keep searching for her. And he doesn't really want to be like everyone else, which is odd for Candide. He says to Kakakambo, if we stay here, we shall only be like the others, whereas if we return to our own world, we shall be richer than all the kings put together. So Candide decides to load up some sheep, that's the pack animal for El Dorado, with the pebbles that he finds laying around on the ground, the pebbles of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and he's going to leave El Dorado, even though he's now found his best of all possible worlds. That's true. But things are not going to go well for Candide, are they? No. Uh, Phil, what happens to Candide and his fortune? He encounters a series of scam artists that find ways of tricking him out of his money, which is not difficult to do, given his innocence and naivete. And it's when they leave El Dorado that Candide and Cacacumbo come up with the plan that Cacacumbo is going to go back and ransom Cunegunde and the old woman away from Don Fernando, and they'll all meet in Venice. But Phil, Candide doesn't want to travel alone, so he's going to find himself another traveling companion. And this is where we meet the last main character of our novel, Martin. Yep. Candide actually holds a little contest. He wants to find the man who is the most disgusted with his lot 
and the most unfortunate in the province. And he picks this scholar named Martin, who had been robbed by his wife, beaten by his son, and abandoned by his daughter, etc., etc. Martin is the antithesis of Pangloss. Pangloss is the eternal optimist, and Martin is really an eternal pessimist. Yeah, there's one section that sums him up. He says, I think that God has abandoned this globe to some maleficent being, so he's pretty dark. And with his new traveling companion, Martin, Candide, after a couple of misadventures both in England and in France, does end up in Venice. However, after about two or three months of waiting, the only person that shows up is Cacacumbo, and he's got another tale of woe to tell. Apparently now, again, Kunigunde is a slave to somebody in Turkey, so now they have to go to Turkey to save her. And he still has some money left that he'll eventually use to purchase her freedom. And it's on their trip to Turkey that Candide runs into a couple of old friends, right? Right. Pangloss resurfaces. This is the uh, presumably hung and dead Pangloss? Candide asks him, are you still of the same opinion after all that has gone on? And he says, I am still of my first opinion, for, after all, I am a philosopher. It is not fitting for me to recant, for life cannot be wrong, and besides, pre-established harmony is the finest thing in the world. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. So eventually our weary travelers, Candide, Martin, and Pangloss, as well as Kunagunde's brother, who's now a member of the chain gang on this Turkish boat, Candide rescues them all, and they all end up in Turkey, where he's going to finally be reunited with Kunagunde. And he tells the brother that I want to marry your sister, and he has the audacity to say, you're not noble enough to marry my sister, even after all that Candide has done for the baron. But Elizabeth, Candide decides he's going to marry her. But in the four or five months that Candide's been in Venice, Cunegunde has undergone some uh, radical transformation, hasn't she? Apparently being a sex slave does nothing for one's beauty because she's now this ugly person. Hideous to everyone. Yes, to everyone. Including Candide. But he still feels he has the obligation of marrying her. And he does. And it's here, with the little money that he has left, that Candide buys a little farm for everyone to live on. Cunegunde and Candide, the old woman, Cacacumbo, Martin. We don't have the Baron's son anymore. He's been sent off to the chain gangs, and after all, he doesn't improve of the marriage. And it's actually at this point, right at the end of our novel, we finally meet who I consider the most practical and realistic philosopher, the farmer. Right. The farmer is the simple man, you might say, who just does his work. He is asked by Pangloss about what's going on in Constantinople and public affairs, and he basically says, I don't worry about all that. I can tell it myself with sending to Constantinople the fruits of the garden that I cultivate. He says, I cultivate the garden with my children. Work keeps away three great evils, boredom, vice, and need. And it keeps away idle philosophy. Exactly. And how does Candide finally end our novel? What's his philosophy now? Well, it's the philosophy of the whole book. Cultivate your garden. Cultivate your garden is really the only thing you can do anyway. So it's very practical. And yet it could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Well, how about you interpret one way for me? Well, one way would be an isolationist idea. Don't worry about the rest of the world. Just focus on your palace, your family, your garden, whatever it is. And in this case, I guess it's important to say that they weren't just gardening. They were actually exercising talents. So each person ended up doing a specific service, like Kunigunde becomes a pastry cook. 
Paquette embroiders. The old woman takes her linen and they all do a service. So it's kind of like, yes, you are focusing on your own area, so to speak, but you're also sending your goods out to the world. But there's no philosophizing, no idle talk. But Phil, isn't this really a justification of Pangloss and his philosophy? They had to go through all these misfortunes. Kunigunde had to be raped and killed, but not killed. Pangloss had to be hung, but not hung. Candide had to be flayed, but then resurrected. They had to go through all these troubles, all this misfortune, to end up on their farm tending their own garden. So Pangloss is right. Everything came out for the best, no? Well, there's a strain of this is the best of all possible worlds at the end. So that is true. Ironically, that in some ways the real garden becomes better than El Dorado, which was supposedly the utopia. But how is his gardening affecting the world? If you are cultivating your garden, what are you doing for the rest of society? Well, what would Pangloss have had them do for the rest of society? Well, nothing. I guess. I think one also important thing at the end is Pangloss is still talking about, isn't this all great that all these events link together? And Candide, you had to be thrown out of the castle to learn all these things. And Candide finally replies with some authority, that is well said, but we must cultivate our garden which I think we can interpret as, enough talk from you. I know we need to cultivate our garden. Sure, we can all say that the current of events carried us to this situation. But if we weren't working, if we didn't put our backs to the hoe and actually cultivate our garden, we wouldn't have this benefit now. And it really required an action on our part, not just the inaction of going along with events. Right. You can't just say whatever is right without doing anything. You have to go out and experience the world and then try to create your own utopia. Just to play devil's advocate, one other possible interpretation that we talked about briefly was that Candide may simply be following a new philosopher now. I mean, the farmer says, cultivate your garden. Candide kind of obeys him, and there he is, following someone else again. But I think overall, the fact that he can stand up to Pangloss is a significant progress for him. Right, and the difference is that he diverges from Pangloss finally, whether or not he espouses someone else's opinion. Right, he's finally standing up for himself with the help of this farmer that taught him. So I think we get enough evidence of development and less innocence on Candide's part. Do you think Voltaire was the farmer? Is he telling us just tend your own garden? I think it's tricky because historically, Voltaire was very politically active. And the message that you might take away from cultivate your garden, don't worry about Constantinople. So I think he certainly would endorse more than any of the other philosophies, probably the last one. But I kind of like to interpret it as act local, think global. That you're trying to impact the world, But you're not doing it through theories. Kind of like peace begins at home, I guess. And I'm not sure that that's what the book is saying. I think he may forget about the global part. I think he's telling them, I'll just act locally and everything will take care of itself, maybe. Maybe. That's the question. That's why people keep reading it, I guess. For me, the continuing question is, why do we think Voltaire wrote the novel Candide? What was he saying? Let's go back a little bit. We talked about this philosophical idea that was running rampant during the time of Voltaire, this optimism, this unbridled optimism that all is best in the world. We can't know God's plan. We don't know why there's evil. But if God is perfect, his world must be perfect. So the evil in it must have some reason. Voltaire totally disagreed with that philosophy. Right. Maybe one of the reasons he wrote the book was to say, okay, yes, there is a grand designer of the universe. There's a God. But we can't assume that whatever it is, is right. And it's perhaps condescending or just plain wrong to look at evil in the world and just say, well, that must be for some cause and we don't know, and therefore let's just continue to be happy or continue to overlook what could be changed. I mean, especially human evils 
don't have to happen. There's one quote in there that talks about how we're not born with bayonets. We made them. Why is that? So I think he's trying to push it in the direction of cultivate your garden in a positive way, and some of those human evils might be diminished. And I think Voltaire's reasoning is similar to modern-day philosophers and all of us. Everyone wants to make a difference. If you're telling the masses that everything is for the best, you don't need to do anything, then no one's going to make a difference. Everything will remain the status quo. Right. There's no hope for change. There's no hope. There's no reason to try to better the world because whatever is there is already what is best. And actually, that's the conversation between predeterminism and free will. Right. Right. Voltaire is saying you can't control some of the events in your own life. You can take positive steps to make your life better. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. God didn't put evil here to destroy you. Evil happens. Evil is in nature. God created nature, and he's allowed nature's events to occur if we just sit back and let it happen. Of course, we're not going to be happy. We need to take those positive steps. I believe that's what Voltaire's arguing for. Tend well your own garden. But understand that where you can have the most impact is on the radishes that are growing in your garden. And that's one of the quotes that has stuck with me because I find it kind of inspiring. Sometimes you can listen to a lot of depressing news stories, let's say, and you almost think, what can I do? This is so difficult. And yet, cultivate your garden just kind of brings you back to your own life and says, you know, it all starts with you and you can't do anything if you've already given that up. All right, Phil, Elizabeth, let's stop here. And what I'd like to do is hear from you guys about some moments we haven't had a chance to talk about. As we said to our listeners, there's a lot happening in this novel. There's a lot of misadventures, a lot of journeys, a few extra characters. We obviously can't cover them all. So if there's one particular moment we've skipped or one moment that will always stick with you, I'd like to hear that. Yeah, I really like the humor of the book. The opening chapter just throws you right into the tone of the work. And I just quote a couple of spots that the narrator is trying to describe how glorious this castle is, which Candide is first raised in. (laughs) And he says, My lord the baron was one of the most powerful lords in Westphalia, for his castle had a door and windows. (laughs) And then later on the same page, first chapter to demonstrate Pangloss and how his logic is so flawed, he quotes him. Pangloss says, It is demonstrated that things cannot be otherwise, for everything being made for an end, everything is necessarily for the best end, and that noses were made to wear spectacles, and so we have spectacles. And we should say that it's this kind of humor, these kind of quick short lines that run throughout the entire novel. Yes, and that's what keeps it interesting, keeps the flow. Absolutely, and I've got a line or two here where he's talking about the difference between the French and the English. This is at a time in our novel where Candide already has Martin as his traveling companion, and they spend a bit of time in England and France before they get to Venice. This is the quote. You know, England continued Candide after a pause. Are they as mad there as they are in France? Yes, said Martin. But there's another kind of folly. You realize, of course, that these two nations are fighting over a few acres of snow on the borders of Canada, and that they now spend more money on this glorious war than the whole of Canada is worth just to decide whether there are more people who ought to be locked up in one country than in another exceeds my feeble powers. I only know that, by and large, the people we're going to visit have a most serious and gloomy temperament. (laughs) Elizabeth, do you have something? Well, I also enjoyed Martin, and I think that we all know a Martin. Someone who's just down on everything. And Candide is trying to believe that people are really happy, you know. And Martin is saying, is anyone really happy? And he thinks the answer is no. Candide says, you are very hard. That's because I have lived, says Martin. But look at those gondoliers, said Candide. Aren't they always singing? 
You don't see them at home with their wives and their brats of children, said Martin. <laughs> so I think he's really funny. That's Martin, our eternal pessimist. I have another couple of lines here that I'd like to read. This is Voltaire skewering critics and journalists. Who was that ill-mannered creature, said Candide, who spoke so harshly of the play at which I wept so freely, and of the actors who gave me such pleasure? Oh, he's an evil-minded fellow, said the Abbey, who earns his living by damning every play and every book. He hates a successful writer just as eunuchs hate successful lovers. He's one of those snakes of literature who feed on dirt and venom. He's a pamphleteer. What do you mean by a pamphleteer, asked Candide. A journalist, he said. Yeah, no one really escapes. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and we should say that satire really skewers everyone. Scientists, politicians, religious figures. Philosophers. Absolutely, philosophers. One final passage I liked was in the last chapter. And this is before the group reaches their cultivate your garden philosophy. They're struggling again with the meaning of life question, and they come across a famous dervish who is considered the best philosopher in Turkey. They went to consult him. Pangloss, of course, is their spokesman. And Pangloss asked them, why do you think such a strange animal as man was created? And the dervish says, what are you meddling in? Is that your business? But Candide says, there's a horrible amount of evil on earth. And the dervish says, what does it matter whether there is evil or good? When his highness in the ship to Egypt, is he bothered about whether the mice in the ship are comfortable or not? Then what should we do, said Pangloss. Hold your tongue, said the dervish. Of course, Pangloss can't do that. He continues to talk, and at these words, the dervish shut the door in their faces. Elizabeth, I understand you particularly like the dervish character as well. Yeah, because it's actually the point where he's going off about everything is for the best and predetermined harmony, and as he's talking about predetermined harmony, that's when the door gets slammed in their faces. Pangloss even says, I was thinking that you and I would reason a bit together about effects and causes, blah, blah, blah. And the guy just slammed the doors and says, get out of here. <laughs> As if these are unwanted solicitors. Very good. Uh, before we reach our last segment here, I've got one or two more lines that I want to read. I'm actually in the middle of reading some Homer, and in fact, Voltaire brings in some Homer here as well. Let me read a couple of lines. There was a time when people convinced me that I enjoyed reading Homer. But that eternal succession of identical combats, those gods were always so busy to no effect, that Helen of his, who gives rise to the war, yet plays so little part in the story, that Troy, so endlessly besieged without being taken, it bores me to distraction. I have sometimes asked learned men if they found this book as tedious as I do. Those who were sincere confessed that it dropped from their hands, but that they felt obliged to keep it in their library, like a relic of the past, or like rusty coins with no current use. And I've got to admit that sometimes I do wonder about those endless battles and Helen of Troy. Is she really the impetus for the novel? And she hardly ever makes an appearance in the story at all. All right, you know what? We're going to stop our conversation here. I want to thank Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick, our readers, for coming in today and having this conversation with me. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. For more information about upcoming novel conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at thefrontporchpeople.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink, audio engineers Sean Ruhlhoffman, Eric Coltnow, and Dave Douglas, and executive producer Joan Andrews. We'd also like to thank our researchers, Vincent O'Keefe and Dr. Michelle Colangelo. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. 
Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.